0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 38 and refocusing on the first war between the Amakosa and the settlers, which took place in 1781. Rarabi had proposed an alliance between himself and the colony in return for Boer assistance against the Imadangi clan, who he had represented as rebels. Rarabi framed the conversation as offering friendship and peace upon a permanent footing, which spoke the settler language. Local strongman Adrian van Jarsveld had responded positively, but then Rarabi missed another important meeting, not for the first time. Meanwhile, Rarabi's implacable enemy and uncle in Klambe had found a Boer ally in Baron Lindeku, who was a lieutenant in the commander. They began to conduct joint raids, as you know, but Lindeku got cold feet at the last minute. That's when the Khoza west of the Fish River decided to teach the Trekkboers a lesson for interfering in Khoza politics and drove them back beyond the Swarkops River. Friction is endemic in frontier situations, and neither the Khoza nor colonists were going to be innocent in the coming conflicts. You could take the stance modern politicians take that the colonists were outsiders and therefore always to blame, but that would of course be somewhat historically ill-informed. The Boers feared the weight of Khoza numbers, and resented being pestered for presents by the roving bands of Tosa men. They also had been given permission by Rarabe to use these pastures, and yet Tosa clans not aligned to Rarabe would want to occupy these lands. Frustration built up on both sides. The Amakosa complained that the Boers were treating their Tosa workers badly and alleged they were abducting their young men and women. They also said the Boers threatened visitors with firearms and then forced them to barter cattle for goods which they didn't want. Underlying these various allegations on the ground was the fact that there were two people who lived in the southeastern Cape who were both pastoral and competing for the same land. But also set these two off against each other was that the political system of the Xhosa was geared to indefinite expansion, and so too were the trekboers. Every man, in both people's case, had the right to their own enclosure, their own farm, their own territory. It was the San, the Tembu, and the Khoi who had given way before the Xhosa and they presumed the Trek Boers would too. The Krauser would then accept them into the scheme of things once they accepted the king's right to rule. While the Boers were proud of their Caucasian features and Christian religion, the Amakosa did not envy the Trek Boers for their ways. They were confident in their culture and history. They presumed the Europeans wore their peculiar clothes ill-suited to Africa because they had sickly and feeble bodies. They were surprised by many things white people did, but at no time did the Khoza believe settlers were more wise nor skillful than the average Khoza man or woman. Worse for the Trekboers, the Khoza realized very early in their relationship that guns and horses could be traded and they became experts in using both. The Amat Koza also realized very early on that horses and guns were ineffective in the thick bush of the Fish River Valley. The vegetation was dense and obscured view. Horses could not move through these ravines. They were rocky and difficult to negotiate on foot, let alone on the back of an animal. Of course, the settlers would also be more visible higher up, so once that closer learned the art of using muskets and then rifles, these riders would be exposed to gunshots. What emerged rapidly was the belief amongst the Xhosa that the Europeans were not of a higher order, and therefore they would merge with the Xhosa in a single society, like the pattern between the Xhosa and the Khoi. They sought to include the colony into their economic, political, and social networks. They traded with the Boers like they did with everyone else. Poor Xhosa ended up working for the Trek as they would have done for rich Xhosa. When it came to political issues, the Tswana chiefs regarded the Boers as both potential allies or at other times as potential enemies. They supported the Boers, for example, against the San and the British. When Dutch settlers like Kunrad de Bees appeared, these ties were reinforced as Inrika hoped to marry de Bees' daughter. More about the remarkable Kunrad de Bees a little later. Internally, the Tosa had discussed the colonials' use of land, and they were prepared to comply with Trekpus using grazing. All that the Trekpus had to do was pay the usual tribute to the Tosa chiefs. Whereas the self confident Tosa chiefs wanted an open frontier, the more vulnerable colonial authorities wanted something else a boundary. It was the beginning of the Bantustans in a strange way. The VOC were hoping to repeat what they'd done around Cape Town by growing a hedge which symbolized us and them. Those living inside were governed by Christian colonial rule and law, and those outside weren't. But the biggest issue was both the clause and the Colonials had conflicting claims to the same rectangle of land, bounded to the east and north by the Fish River and in the west by the Bushmans River, the Zuurveld, as we've come to know it. Due to the Dutch complaints from the region, eventually Governor van Plettenberg decided to seize this land by force. The Prinsler family had already handed over their petition, as you've heard. Now it was time to set up a strong commando, and it would be sent to attack the Cosa. Van Plettenberg quilled a note which included this line ominously. Upon the proceedings of this commando, as it appears to me, will depend the doubtful question whether the Cosa are to be forcibly dislodged or the inhabitants obliged to abandon that country. This is the dilemma which predates many similar questions in South African history. It recorded the first painful bewilderment over the doubtful question at the core of the situation, that, having started badly, was probably going to get worse. And it did. Governor van Plettenberg briefed the head of the commander, Adrian van de Asfalt, on how to resolve this doubtful question. The colony was fighting in two fronts against the sand at the edge of the escarpment, and against the cause along the proclaimed colonial boundary. But at this juncture, von Plettenberg realized that cause crisis was more serious. von Jarsfeldt was told to try to get that cause back across the Fish River without using force because the governor believed they were what he called a very peaceable and timid people. But he said if they refused to head back to the east bank of the Fish River, then a respectable and well-armed commando should drive them there like cattle. But what von Jasfeld didn't know was that the Tosa were not timid. Turning to the sand, the governor said von Jasfeld had a free hand. Unless they surrendered, then he was, in the words of von Plettenberg, at liberty to put them to death and entirely destroy them. These are, of course, people he's talking about. But that, of course, was the 1780s. I recently attended a South African First Peoples meeting, and the anger about what happened next makes this history feel like it's more like contemporary politics. The San descendants are angry at both the Amatoza and the Amabunu. Reading Swedish naturalist Anders Sparman's personal account of this time as he travelled about the region and described how Prinsler's farm had been burnt down is interesting and he saw firsthand how effectively the cause had laid waste to the districts in revenge for Dutch interference in their internal politics. So, for New Asfeld, Julie established his base at Prinzler's gutted farm in July 1781. Then he sallied forth to negotiate with the cause. They, of course, refused to move back across the Fish River. He gave them a four-day ultimatum to leave the Zuertveld. He was dealing with the Imadange, if you remember last episode, and four days later... Van Jarsveld duly headed back to talk to the chief. He returned to not so much a timid as a hostile reception. The Imadangi warriors had turned out in full war regalia and tried to squeeze between the commando members. Van Jarsveld managed to stop them. The commander remained in the saddle. It was large, more than 80 men. They reversed their horses, but the warriors pressed among them. Nevertheless, so eventually the commando formed a firing line whereupon his men dismounted. He used his old trick. He told the Trinkwers to gather their tobacco together and then walked about 20 meters out front of the firing line and scattered the tobacco across the ground. Then he told the Amatose it was a gift. As the warriors moved from amongst the commander and rushed forward to pick up the luxury, Van gave the order to fire. he had used the same ruse against the sand, as you've heard. This was the start of what is regarded as the First Frontier War between the Amat and the Cape Colony, or alternatively, the start of a 100-year war. It would take that long to break the Xhosa. There were going to be nine walls in all, although this first was a skirmish more than a battle and led to a series of cattle raids. It would last only two months, and most of the time, the Trekpurs merely seized cattle to try to force the Xhosa eastwards. Both sides, during this initial clash, were fearful of each other, although the Xhosa were less. The Boers had firearms, but they were short of ammunition and numbers. The Khoza had the numbers, but at this stage, very little ammunition, guns or horses. The Trek Boers were even more fearful of the San and Khoza forming a joint venture, so to speak, because that would have been the end of the Zurfeld farms for some time. Unfortunately for their opponents, the Khoza feared the San and actually regarded them as subhuman, and they hardly communicated, unlike the Khoza and the Khoi. There was also some doubt about the commander's effectiveness, and similar doubts would surface constantly in the Trek Boers' military tactics. Yes, they were excellent at surprise and ambush, but not very effective in open field fighting. The Boers were not very good at military tactics and strategy in an open fight. They never fought full frontal charges against opponents who had large numbers. It was suicidal. The Boers had localized or Africanized their tactical use of mobility and firepower, as well as surprise. They were also hardly a proper army. They had poor discipline, which meant Van Jarsveldt was never sure if his men would fight or just disappear. They had no formalized codes of war, unlike the Amatkoza and later the Amazulu. The Trek Boers quarreled amongst themselves all the time. They had no real sense of mutual obligation in a broad sense. They tried to avoid commander duty constantly and often sent their mixed race sons that had been born of relationships with the Amatkoza and Koi servants or koi workers to do commando duty in their place. These were also the last days of the Dutch East India Company, the VOC. It had no resources, no soldiers, to send to the trekboers in the zoo So, there would not be a full-scale war, nor field pieces or cannon, no professional army. The French fleet leader, Sufren, was on his way to Cape Town just as Van Yarsveld began his assault on the Amakrosa. Given all these facts, the idea of the colonists taking on a powerful new enemy in the Kroza was a pipe dream. They were incapable of dealing with the sand properly, and they were now commingling, mingling in a non-sexual way, with warlike amat clans. The Prinzluers and von Jasvelds showed no hesitation in sparking trouble by raiding the Amatkosa, and yet they had no instinctive caution against what they were provoking. The Boers lacked a collective sense of responsibility. They were fighting for small family units, Isolated on these massive Zurfeldt farms, far from governors and other legal colonial entities. They refused to support each other at times. Only when their farms were burned down and they were physically in danger from that cause did they finally agree to work together. The powerful individualism which their trekking into the interior had imbued their people with meant at this stage in Africana development they had little common cause. They were hospitable to each other, but very seldom offered each other their right arms in battle. Stubborn grievances with neighbours meant that during this First Frontier War, the Trekboers were exposed to ruination by indulging in hillbillyism, if there is such a word. The Amatbos, as you know, also had their own internal squabble at this point, which weakened them to some extent too. For the Trekboers, a cabal of strong, tough men like the Prinslers and von Jauswels used violence and willful behaviour which, of course, was going to have repercussions. The Trek Boers were also prone to rumours and wild panic living so far apart from each other on their isolated farms. There was a moment at this time when our history may have been somewhat different, but what happened during the First Frontier War and its aftermath set up the future. Things crystallised around a pattern of erratic and destructive, perverse and selfish responses that we will view virtually continuously after this period. The Imadange told French traveller Le Valin that they were growing concerned that the Trek Boers seemed to be in chaos. He had travelled through the border zone of brankis where he noted how the Boers had set up their defences and were agitated by the chaos amongst the Amatoza themselves. Rumours spread on both sides. That is not a healthy situation at any time, but right now, these disinformation campaigns came from a lack of joint learned experience together. The wars were going to make this far worse. So von Yarsfeld shot down numbers of Amakosa warriors and then pushed them eastwards. He rode back to Prince Louis' burnt-out farm afterwards, sure that he had accomplished his mission successfully. The Amagwali and Tinde and Mindangi chieftains had been cleared from Branki's Huerta, but of the others there was much doubt. For example, the frontier chieftains such as the Mbalu under Langa, the Akonukwebe under Chaka, and his son Chungwa, continued occupying the western bank of the Fish River closer to the Indian Ocean coast. This was symbolized in an astonishing moment. As the commander withdrew, a mass of zurfeldt who had fled from them only the night before, suddenly appeared standing on a ridge above the horsemen. Where, standing on the hills, they shouted to us that they would resume the fight, wrote Le Ballon. Langas Mbalu and Chaka's Kwebe were people far more determined and tenacious than the three chieftains who were moved away from Branki's Wuchte. What Van Jaspelt didn't know was that even the weaker three chieftains had only temporarily been moved, they would be back. These people were now bad-tempered, angry, their egos bruised. A year later, they would take out their anger on the poor sailors and survivors of the Grosvenor as they struggled along the coast after being shipwrecked. These men and women experienced attacks and violence in complete contrast to the survivors of the Stebanese, who had been well treated a century before. The Grosvenor was an old ship on her last voyage. She had sailed from India in a convoy led by Admiral Douglas Hughes, and the fleet found itself fighting in the Indian Ocean with Suffren. This was before the peace signing I mentioned earlier. During the fighting, the Grosvenor slipped away and picked up the monsoon setting course for the South African coast. She was laid in with a valuable cargo of gold coins, diamonds, silk, cotton, tea and spices and she was off the Ponderland coast on the 4th of August 1782 having been driven forward by what one survivor called a fine gale. All aboard were hoping to reach Santa Elena soon and the crew took to drinking to absent friends. Things were going so well. It could have been a navigational error but whatever the cause the Grosvenor struck rocks. Badly damaged, the ship was washed ashore just south of where the Stevanese had been wrecked. The survivors were now walking towards the Cape along a coast that had just experienced the First Frontier War. Young apprentice William Hubbly wrote an account of this great march. Whereas the Stevanese survivors had waxed lyrical about the Amatosa, their friendliness and the landscape, his account is totally different. They were repeatedly refused food and unheard of in a tradition when travellers passed by. Then they were stripped and robbed. Some were chased and beaten, and often there was no reason. And one incident heavily describes, We fell in with about 20 of the natives who were on the beach, men, women, and children, who fell on us with sticks and stones and beat us until they were tired and took from us our shellfish. The Koza fed their dogs milk in front of these survivors, who were now suffering from scurvy. They stumbled along southwards, famished and pathetic, begging for help, but the shock of Van Jarsveld's actions against Amma had turned these people. From now on, they saw all travellers as whites first, not people. Their worst troubles began at precisely the point of the First Frontier War, the Fish River, and continued along the beach, fringing the Zierveld. Hubbly watched survivor Williams being dragged into one river by the Koza and drowned. Then another survivor by the name of Taylor was attacked by Amakosa armed with their traditional throwing spears and killed as Hubbali managed to escape, chased by the Amakosa's hunting dogs. Later, it was clear the Mbalu were involved in the attacks because they no longer trusted white survivors of shipwreck. How different it was decades before, and you've heard the stories thus far. The European women who married Koza chiefs, the men who married Koza women and started large clans which exists to this day, now things had changed. A few months after the terrible calamity that was the Grosvenor shipwreck, a large commander was sent to seek survivors, and it arrived at Chief Lunger's great place. When they approached his kraal to ask him for help in finding the castaways, the chief fled. When he was finally tracked down and persuaded to meet with the commander, he refused. He had heard about what Van Ysselt had done with his tobacco trick. His response, according to members of the commander, was that the had been deceived several times before, and so he had not trusted us. So the commander, which had actually not come in anger, handed out copper, bees, and tobacco, two bulls, and five cows. Lunga was then a bit calmer, and he promised to quell his people's anger against the Trekkers. By now, Lunga was an old man, but the spirit and temper he had invested in his people was powerful. Lunga was the brother of the extremely effective warrior Traleka and Rarabe. His temper could be as fierce as theirs. After the house of Paolo broke up, he had moved away from the turbulent vicinity of the house and established his own chieftain. Lunga was renowned as courageous and aggressive, particularly in the hunting of elephants and rhino, the most dangerous prey that amat took on. His people, then Paolo, had taken their name from Lunga's favourite ox, and have never lost a reputation to this day for action, belligerence, and daring. During the coming 100 years' war, they were possibly some of the most feared people. When the commander searching for the survivors of the Grosvenor pitched up at his great place, he was believed to be 78 years old. Unfortunately for him, as you'll hear in the next podcasts, his proud, adventurous life was going to end in flight and humiliation. And so the zoo felt this triangle in the modern area of the Eastern Cape lying between Qaberga, East London, and inland to Craddock, was going to be crucial land fought over by settlers and Amakosa for many, many years. With that ominous note ringing in our ears, it's time to halt for the episode. Next, we'll continue our story as the Zoo felt's main players, the Trekpurs that the and the Mbaulu, the Gwali, and others, and we'll meet the extraordinary man known as Kunrad the Bass. His presence dominated the frontier, through the last two decades of the 18th century and symbolizes a kind of lost root of Afrikaner history. You see, besides being close to seven foot tall, he was probably the most African of all Boers. He married Khoi and Amat Kosa woman. He had an affair, then married Khoza chief Nika's mother and was systematically written out of South Africa's history during apartheid, regarded as an embarrassment, as you can well imagine. The scunder of such a racy story if you excuse the pun. The base would have been a legend on any frontier, as Noel Mostat writes, and he had hundreds of children and grandchildren and is the ancestor of a large clan of mixed-race South Africans who still live in the Limpopo province to this day, people known as the base folk. So with that, please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you want to contact me, you can send an email through my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at DesLatham. Until next, tot Music